Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, 28, 2, 8 to 9, and 15 to 22. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is the word of the Lord. Chris Juline, uh, the pastoral intern here at Liberty Fairmount. Let's just get all situated. And let me pray for us. Father, I pray that my words would be pleasing in your sight, that we would know uh, more about how the gospel impacts our work and how we glorify you through what we do every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to look at work as cultivation. So far in the sermon series, The Gospel and Work, we've looked at the design of work and the dignity of work. And today we're going to look at the work that Adam actually did. What was Adam tasked with in the garden? What did God command of him? And why does it matter for us? We're going to see that God tasked Adam with the work of filling the earth and subduing it, which is nothing less than the creation and cultivation of a human, uh, flourishing human society. Today, we're going to see how we continue this very work of cultivation. As we go through this series, we keep circling back to a few, a few uh, key questions uh, that are really the subtext for our sermons. They are, why do you do the work that you do every day? Why do you do it? Is it just for money, just to get by? Do you aim to help others through your vocation? Is that the highest goal of your work? 
what does it mean to live in a world that's obviously broken by sin, right? The, the world is not the way it should be. So as Christians, how do we live in the world and also work in this world? And I would ask you, especially if you're here uh, for uh, the first time, you're a newcomer, and you're maybe just learning about the faith, wondering what Christianity is all about, I would ask you, uh, what is your work to you? Are you working to make the world a better place, and why do you want to do this? Or is work just a necessary evil, something that we do just so we can make enough money so we can go on vacation? These are the questions that our sermon series considers. And I hope uh, that we all can leave today uh, having come away with a better understanding of how the gospel impacts our work. Move this a little higher. Okay. So first, we're going to uh, begin by looking at uh, what Adam was tasked with in the garden. What was his work? Then we're going to think about why our work impacts and creates culture. And thirdly, we'll look at how we impact and create culture. So first, what was Adam's work? Secondly, why our work impacts culture? And thirdly, how? So let me read again uh, the first of our verses for today from Genesis 1. This is verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So first, God blessed them, and then he gave them work to do. The work was part of the blessing. I mean, God didn't rescind his blessing. The text doesn't say God blessed them, but then God changed his mind and said, actually, I have a job for you to do on earth, right? The work was part of the blessing. He didn't rescind or take back his blessing when he told them to fill and subdue the earth. Now, this was not antagonistic. That's the first thing we should point out. Now, the word subdue in our minds sounds pretty negative, right? We think of like a ruler subduing his servants or a master or a lord subduing like an uprising or something. But this command to work uh, and to, to subdue and fill the earth was given before sin came into the world. And because sin had not yet entered the world, this work was not toilsome labor. It wasn't sinful. It wasn't antagonistic. It was a work of joy and love. One scholar of the Old Testament, Meredith Klein, writes this with regards to subduing the earth. It was not intended that man's dominion over the earth and his appropriation of its resources should be twisted into a process of destructive exploitation. Indeed, for man to ravage and poison his world would be to turn it into an unmanageable monster, a savage master that would tyrannize him. There was no exploitation before the fall, before sin had come into the world. And so what Adam and Eve were called to do was a good and beautiful thing. Subduing and filling the earth would bring about civilization itself. And this subduing and filling of the earth is often called the cultural mandate. So we see that subduing the earth was not manipulation or exploitation of the earth's resources. Rather, it was the slow progress and advancement of mankind into human society. The goal was human culture and a culture that glorified God. Al Walters, a Christian professor, writes the following. When God rests from his labors in creation, this is not the end of the development of the world. Although God has withdrawn from the work of creation, he has put an image of himself on the earth with a mandate to continue. The earth had been completely unformed and empty. In the six-day process, uh, uh, 
process of development, God had formed and filled it, but not completely. People must now carry on where God left off. But this is now to be a human development of the earth. The human race will fill the earth with its own kind, and it will form the earth for its own kind. From now on, the development of the created earth will be societal and cultural in nature. In a single word, the task ahead is civilization. God commanded Adam to subdue the earth. This means that when God created the world, he created it to need further work. That's an interesting point. There was more to be done on the earth, but now humanity would be the ones who continue the work of cultivation and creation. Adam was the one who needed to work the earth so that it would bring forth its fruit. God created the entire cosmos, everything we see, but he, he created it in such a way that it could be developed further. He charged man with building society, in effect, to join him in his creative process, to join him in what he had done. He first created, and then he called Adam to join in that work of creation. We've already heard from Meredith Klein, uh, the, the scholar of the Old Testament, in another place, this is what he writes. The goal of Adam's kingdom commission was not some minimal local life support system. It was rather maximal, global mastery. The cultural mandate put all the capacity of human brain and brawn to work in a challenging and rewarding world to develop the original paradise home into a universal city. Adam and Eve weren't commanded to sit around, relax, enjoy nature, look at the trees, or even merely to walk with God. We know that they did walk with God. When you think about it, God could have commanded them to obey him in a number of ways. He could have said, walk with me every day. He could have said, sing praises to me. But what he told them to do was fill and subdue the earth. He told them to build a human civilization, to shape the earth into a man-made city. That was the goal from the beginning. Adam and Eve were to fill the earth, to procreate, and to subdue the earth, to work the ground and the raw materials that were around them into a human society. In other words, they were to cultivate all that was around them so that beauty emerged, order emerged, human society, flourishing society, as it was supposed to be, would emerge. These two positive commands, these two things that they should do, were the two primary ways Adam and Eve were to glorify God. It's the way they knew how to praise him, how to honor and how to obey him by filling the earth and subduing it. Adam and Eve were blessed and told to glorify God by cultivating the earth and bringing forth human culture. Their cultivation of the resources around them led to culture and to human flourishing. If we look at C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, we actually get a pretty good picture of this. So in addition to writing the entire Narnia series, uh, C.S. Lewis also wrote a space trilogy, which, as you can guess, took place in outer space. Uh, so this comes from the second book of this series, which is called Paralandra. And this is a world, uh, the world that Lewis depicts is one where sin had not yet entered the world, right? The fall had not taken place. This was a world that was f free from sin. So uh, there's a place in the book where the king of their world, their Adam, talks about his plans for the world. He says that they're going to build cities. They'll construct architecture and buildings never before seen. They'll fill the world with their children. They'll create places of worship. He says they will know this world to the center. They're going to know completely about the world as it was. He even talks about his relationship to the animals. He says they're going to become wiser. There wasn't antagonism there. 
There is only friendship and flourishing. Notice that the first two ways Adam and Eve were to glorify God were things that they should do. They should fill the earth and subdue it. They should work the garden and keep it. But the third way to glorify God was something that God forbid Adam and Eve to do. He tells them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as we read in verses 16 and 17. Let me read those again. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I can't really go into the entirety of the fall uh, of sin entering the world. That's uh, not the topic of this particular sermon, and it, it definitely deserves at least one sermon. Uh, so why, why do I bring it up and emphasize it? Well, it's to point out the ways that Adam and Eve had a different call from us. Adam and Eve had a unique role in history, and one that we actually don't share in every way. Adam and Eve were tasked to do work. They were to work the garden and subdue the earth, as we've been talking about. And both because God had worked and because he gave this commandment before sin came into the world, this means that uh, work is inherently good. It's a good thing. This aspect of work, it being good, does continue today. Work is now frustrated because of of sin, that's true. And we don't work like we should because we're sinful. We're impacted by sin. But it remains true that work has dignity, as we've talked about in previous Sundays. But Adam and Eve were tasked tasked to do work as a means of keeping the covenant that God had made with them. God charged them to work and to not eat of the fruit of that one tree. If uh, If they obeyed God, they would live. If they disobeyed God, they would die. Work and not eating of the fruit was their way of obeying God and keeping his commandments. And so in that way, we are not similar to Adam and Eve. Our work does not keep the covenant as Adam and Eve's work did. So there's both continuity between our work and Adam's work, right? Our work is good, and there's discontinuity. Adam and Eve worked to obey God uh, and obeyed God in order to keep his covenant, but that's not why we work. Even though we don't work to keep the covenant, the truth remains that work is good. Like Adam, our work does glorify God and creates, cultivates, contributes to human society and culture. As we've seen, Adam was charged with creating human society, but what is human society and culture? What are we actually talking about here, right? As with most complex issues, there's a range of what people believe. There's lots of issues to consider on the topic of what is culture. But simply put, I would say that culture is the the confluence, the coming together of the ideas, the actions, the goals and dreams of a group of people in one location, right? It's all the actions, the belief systems, the worldviews that are present, uh, both, we could say, in the United States at a large scale, as well as in a place like this church, in this smaller subculture. There's both macro and micro aspects to culture, right? We live in the United States, and because of that, at least those of us who were raised here, we believe certain things very deeply, things we can hardly even uh, recall, bring up to our consciousness because they're so deeply woven into who we are. There are things that we believe because we were raised here in the United States, right? We're impacted by that large-scale culture. But also, we're a part of many, many subcultures, micro-communities, micro-cultures that we're a part of that we more clearly participate in and contribute to, like our workplaces, 
our homes, our immediate friendships. Those form small cultures as well. Even in the Bible, we read, we read about God's interactions with various people, various individuals, as well as various people groups, um, various nations even. When we see God acknowledging, warning, and sometimes punishing and rewarding uh, both individuals for their actions, as well as entire nations or cities for the collectivity's actions. One example of this is the Tower of Babel, uh, which is the people uh, wanted to build a tower to the heavens. They wanted to make a name for themselves and reach heaven. And this was a sinful goal. It was a prideful thing. They wanted to establish their own name. And so God scattered them, right? He scattered them for their collectivity's sin, for all of their sin. He drove them away. In other words, it matters both who we are as individuals as well as the groups and cultures that we're a part of. We're going to come back to that later on, uh, but now I want to look at why our work impacts and creates culture. Now, when Christians get together and think about culture, the question is often presented like this. Should we, as Christians, engage in the culture? How much should we engage the culture and society? But in my opinion, uh, these are the wrong questions to be asking. Uh, I think that because of the initial commandments given to Adam, uh, we as Christians necessarily impact culture. We do impact culture. In all that we do, we affect the people around us. We affect the economy. We affect the ideas in the world. We affect our workplaces. Everything. We impact all of it. The in other words, the question is not should we or should we not engage in culture. The question is not whether or not we engage culture, but how should we participate and contribute to culture? How should we cultivate society and culture through our work? I want to explain what I mean by looking first at an example in the world, and then by looking at a few scripture passages that talk about our calling in the world. And I think we'll see how we do necessarily impact the world through our work. So first, often when, when Christians talk about culture, we can talk about, um, some, some Christians believe that our calling is to withdraw from culture almost completely, right? To totally be separate, uh, to try to live completely apart from everyone else. Some Christians believe that the church is supposed to be a subculture in society that's essentially sectarian. It's totally cut off from the surrounding ties to the world. Now, it is true that we're called to be different, and a Christian's life should look different because of God's influence in our lives. And that's really what the sermon series is all about, you know, in a nutshell. Uh, it's asking the question, okay, now that I'm saved, what difference does that make in my day-to-day -day life? Does the gospel actually impact my work? That's the question of this series. If the gospel's real, if I'm saved by God's grace, what difference does that make in my work, my vocation? So it is true that the church is called to be distinct from culture, but there is no call in the Bible to seclude ourselves and be a subculture that hides away from the world. In fact, even the most sectarian of subcultures, those subcultures, the groups of people who try desperately hard to distance themselves, remove themselves from the world, they still impact culture. We can see this if we look at uh, the example of the Amish. Okay, now the Amish are quite distinct, right? They've certainly tried to be set apart from culture, separate, and they do have uh, very different views of life than many people in our world. They've tried to remove themselves almost completely from the influence of the world. But even though they try to live entirely in a self-enclosed subculture, they still impact the surrounding culture at large. 
economically, they create goods that they sell to others. And because the, because the Amish exist, their beliefs are known in the world, and those beliefs challenge other people's uh, beliefs and their belief systems just because they exist. Even geographically, if you're trying to drive west through Pennsylvania, the presence of the horse and buggy is going to impact your trip, right? You have to slow down for them. Pennsylvania is different because the Amish live here. Like, Pennsylvania would not be the same place if they weren't here. The United States would be different. Our history would be different. I mean, there was even a TV show about the Amish, or I think about Amish youth called Breaking Amish. So they've even impacted pop culture at large. Even though the Amish is a subculture that's split off from culture at large, the Amish still impact the society around them and the small subcultures that are around them. And it's the same with us. It's a myth to think that we as Christians can make a subculture that won't really impact the world. The question uh, is not whether we engage culture, but how we should engage culture with our work. We see from the example of the Amish why our work impacts society, and now I want to look at a few verses from Scripture uh, that show us why our work impacts society. So I want to look at several verses all at once, kind of lay them out for you, just three in a row, and then look at them together, and I think we'll be able to see the common threads that uh, run through all of them that show how our work impacts culture. So first is uh, Micah. He was a Jewish. Uh, he was a prophet to the Jewish people. He was sent by God to speak to God's people. And this is one thing he wrote. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The second passage uh, comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, from him we read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and have daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Or in its peace, you will find your peace. The third and final passage to look at before we kind of weave it all together uh, comes from uh, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Here he's describing true fasting and true service to the Lord. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. So what can we say about these passages? Well, first, and I think mainly, uh, God is at work through our work in society. Through our daily work in society, God is working. He has called us to work in culture, and he himself is working there. What did the passage we just, we just read end with? It says, the Lord shall be your rear guard. He is the one who's defending us, who's protecting us. He is the one who's working through our work. Where do we do justice and love mercy except in and with 
the people of the culture in our society? Where do we build houses, plant gardens, and have children, except in and with the people of our culture, with our neighbors? Where do we loose the bonds of wickedness, let the oppressed go free, clothe the naked, and feed the hungry, except in and with the people of our culture who are struggling? The previous verse uh, even mentioned not hiding ourselves from our own flesh. So how can we even think of forming a Christian subculture that wants to hide away from the world, that wants to say, oh, we don't impact culture? The verse said not to hide from our own flesh. So how can we be so separate as to not impact our culture? All of these things, everything that was described as true fasting and true service to the Lord are things that are done in culture among the people. Our work impacts culture because this is the realm where God has told us to work. He works through us and through our work to impact the world. We are the means that he uses in the world. And so now I want to think, uh, finally, um, thirdly, about some ways in which we impact and create culture through our work, right? How do we practically do that? What does that really mean? We've seen that Adam's work was to fill the earth and subdue it, in other words, to create human culture. And we've seen that we are called to engage culture and impact the world as well. But how do we actually impact culture through our work? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, we've seen one way uh, in the verses above. As Christians, we are empowered by the gospel, by what God has said, to relieve those who are suffering in the world. We have the freedom to pursue vocations that seek both to resolve systemic oppression as well as help individuals in need. In addition to this, through our work and in our workplaces, we can show the reality of life here on earth. We can express honestly the hardships, difficulties, the painful experiences that are present in this world, and we can express why this is the case. We can tell the story of this world truly and tell what God has done to redeem it, what he's done for us. We can be honest about the world we live in, and can express the hope that's found in Jesus. In our work, we can show how we depend on God for all things. I found a quote um, in our companion reader for this series, Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Uh, Keller quotes uh, Andy Crouch, who writes in his book, Culture Making. Um, and this quote says it better than I can. Here's what Andy Crouch says about his wife and her work. In her work as a professor of physics... Catherine can do much to shape the culture of her courses and her research lab. In the somewhat sterile and technological environment of a laboratory, she can play classical music to create an atmosphere of creativity and beauty. She can shape the way her students respond to exciting and disappointing results and can model both hard work and good rest rather than frantic work and fitful procrastination. By bringing her children to work with her occasionally, she can create a culture where family is not an interruption from work and where research and teaching are natural parts of a mother's life. By inviting her students into our home, she can show that she values them as persons, not just as units of research productivity. At the small scale of her laboratory and classroom, she has real ability to reshape the world. When I first read that, I was moved by that. Here is a, it's a beautiful description of a Christian woman who has thought through how her work is impacted by the gospel. 
Her work is not something that she does just to make money to go on vacation or even just to make money to give to the church and to fund missions. She's thought through how the gospel, how the reality of who God is, what he's done, how that shapes her work. I think it's, I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, there's something to be said for what Adam did in the garden when he named the animals. That's one of our passages for today. So let me read those few verses again. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the fields and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. I feel that there is a tremendous amount of finality in that last verse. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. God didn't swoop in and say, uh, you, you kind of messed this one up. It should be something else, right? Whatever Adam named them, that was their name. His work had lasting impact on the world. Now, our work today does not have quite the same result. Our work is impeded by the reality of sin in the world, as well as the sin in our hearts and the fact that we are fallen. Uh, and that's something we're actually going to look at in the coming weeks. We're going to look at how uh, the reality of the fall, the reality of sin in our world impacts our work. But what I want us to notice here is that Adam was uniquely equipped by God for his work of naming the animals. God prepared and equipped him for that work. Likewise, in Ephesians 2, in a letter uh, written to the early church, an ancient letter written to them, we read that we are all created by God with specific works in mind, that we should do. This is what it says in Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This means that the things we do every day, the work we put our hands to, are good things that God has created for us to do. He has uniquely equipped each of us to accomplish these good things. Now, the good works here, what was read in the verse, it's a large umbrella that includes all sorts of things. It includes what we might think of as typical good works, such as you know, helping someone cross the street or returning someone's wallet if they dropped it on the side of the road. Right? That's included here. But the gospel is not so small as to only apply to a few good deeds every now and then. The gospel impacts every area of our life. Right? The gospel is Lord, uh, Jesus is Lord over all of our lives. This includes our daily work. When we work hard with excellence, when we treat others as dignified human beings rather than merely means to an end, we are doing the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The word here for work in the Greek text, the word work, isn't limited to what we might consider as overtly spiritual or nice things, the good things we do that we kind of check off on a list. Rather, work here is defined as business, employment, that with which anyone is occupied, any product, whatever, anything accomplished by hand, art, industry, mind, and that which harmonizes with the order of society. That's what's described here in this passage when it talks about God having good works for us to do. It's talking about our vocation, the things we do every day. But of course, there's an important distinction in the verse we just read. It's only those who are created in Christ Jesus who walk in the ways that, that God has prepared for us. In other words, you may be listening to this sermon thinking, yes, I want you know, good to be done in the world. I like the verses that talked about setting the oppressed free, feeding the hungry. Now, I want to make this world a better place. That, all, that sounds pretty good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do that. 
But the problem is, Christianity is not a religion where it all depends on you to do enough good works or even to do enough good in society so that God's pleased with you. That's not what Christianity is about. In fact, you could do many good things in society. You could feed the homeless. You could bring justice to a neighborhood. You could resolve oppression. You could uh, resolve uh, family disputes, disputes between friends. But if you don't believe in Christ, in other words, if you reject Christ, then God will not accept you based on your works. Why is this? It's because even our best works cannot right the wrongs that we ourselves have committed. And this is one reason why we can't look at the outside world and cry evil and then look at ourselves and say, no, nah, I'm pretty good. I do a couple nice things every now and then. No, we're, we're bound up in the sins of our nation. So any good thing we do, any good that we accomplish through our vocations, through our work, will not be enough to right all the wrongs that we ourselves have done. And who's to say, anyway, that the good things we do aren't simply uh, to assuage ourselves of a, of a guilty conscience, right? We know the wrong we've done, so we try to do, we try to do right in the world. Well, what kind of a good work is that? We can't depend on ourselves and our good works to save us. We can't rely on some sort of karma ethic, thinking that if we do enough good things, the bad will just kind of dissolve. We're actually far worse than we imagine. We're too fragile. We're too frail. We're too divided, right? Too frenet frantic with our minds. We're not a stable foundation. We err too often to rely on ourselves. We need a savior and one who is perfect. Ephesians 2, the passage we just read about God preparing works for us to do, that's only true because Christ kept the commandments that Adam failed to keep. Adam was charged with working the garden, filling the earth, and not eating of the fruit of that one tree. But Adam failed. This is why we call Jesus Christ the second Adam. Through Jesus' obedience to God, he upheld the covenant with God that Adam broke. Adam failed, and we all plunged into sin and death. But Christ succeeded, and now we have freedom from sin and death. This is the only way our work can be truly pleasing to God if it is done as a believer of Jesus. And actually, the gospel says, it's not because of the good things we've done in society that God saves us. It's in spite of all the corruption we've contributed to. It's in spite of all of our selfishness, all of our greed and our vocations that God sent his son into the world. That's what it means to be saved by God's grace. And we can be assured that if we are in Christ, we can be assured that the work we do in our vocations is pleasing to God. God is pleased with Christ because he obeyed him. And if we believe in Christ, God is pleased with us as well. Just like Adam, we fill the earth and subdue it. Our work is good and it cultivates the materials around us to produce, interact with, and impact culture. But we, we rely completely on Christ. It's only because of him that our work is acceptable and pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness in sending Christ. Even while we were dead in our sins, while we selfishly were here on the earth, Lord, after Adam had failed, you sent Christ to keep your commandments, to fill the covenant that we could not fulfill. Lord, we thank you 
that we can now work with our hands and honor you truly and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.